0: Hello and welcome to High Theory. Today we are talking about effective masculinities with Amrita De. Amrita, before we begin, would you mind introducing yourself?
1: I am Amrita, so I am right now a postdoctoral fellow at Penn State University, affiliated to the Centers of Humanities and Information. So my doctoral dissertation was on South Asian masculinity studies, but I'm definitely thinking more seriously about the social organization of masculinity.
0: So let me ask you, what the heck are affective masculinities?
1: The thing about affect is that the traditional way to think about affect would be something that exists at the level of the pre-subjective. And what I really mean by that is that we often have a sense of things before we can really come to our understanding of what that sense really is. So it could be something that you're feeling, but it's difficult to describe. Affect literally means something that is impossible to describe. But I tend to think about affect more in sense of our attachment to the world in general and in terms of what Lauren Berlin would describe as our being and belonging in this world. Relations that we are sort of imbued in. Something that I need to like mention at the start that I'm definitely thinking of masculinity more in terms of a social organization. So I'm not as much interested in the, you know, embodied idea of masculinity, which has more to do with uh, maleness or what it means to be a man. But I'm really thinking about the social organization that kind of gives a sense of dominance, right, or certain kind of abstraction. And one of the things that I was trying to do in my dissertation is to retroactively trace what you know comes to be coded as aspirational signifiers of masculinity. And then the concomitant fragility in that kind of an abstraction itself right so we understand that it's fragile in terms of an abstraction but the way we witness it is always through the structure of solidity right so in terms of my sort of trying to mark these moments in terms of a decomposition of these abstractions I'm really trying to think through the messy assemblages through which this idea of solidity is Mm. conceptualized
0: So when you say script, and the part of that we talked about is, you know, body language, behavioral, um, let's say idioms, what else are you reading, is my question.
1: In terms of like me thinking through these sort of very, you know, abstract ideas, I'm really interested in this sense of an ongoing interaction with the world, right, or with everything around us, and also thinking through in terms of these moments when we take pause, moments when we are not really sure of what we are feeling. So something about affect that I especially code here is that it is not really about a positive or a negative balance. It doesn't matter whether it's a recessive attachment or something that is affirmative. It doesn't really matter to me because that can be easily coded as, say, transgressive or subversive or reactionary or anything. But I'm really thinking about affect more in terms of a sense of flatness, a sense of something is happening within me, but I'm not really sure about whether it's positive, negative, or if it's anything at all. What I mean here is that for so long, the idea of masculinity has literally... Uncoded in a way. So it's been unmarked, and now suddenly there's a lot of information which is telling you that everything has this gendered sort of a coding. But if you look back, you will see that the idea of masculinity is something that has literally passed off without a sense of history. It's important for me to identify moments through which the dominant idea of masculinity in terms of the stereotypes of masculinity even when it is hailed as, say, a toxic projection, still passes off as aspirational, right? And that is where affect comes in. Maybe a better way to understand this would be through really the figure of the entrepreneur, you know, the sense of brash machismo, which is associated with the figure of the entrepreneur. So on one hand, we do understand that the entrepreneur is a particular symptom of neoliberalism in a way, but it's also always projected as aspirational right so I'm interested in the linkages through which a sense of aspirationality is coded within this abstraction but also on the other hand I'm also interested in thinking beyond this paranoia of like you know coding something as toxic or even positive for that matter I'm not interested in really thinking about what is a positive model of masculinity or what is a negative Model of masculinity. You know, obviously, that work is important, but I'm really interested in how do these ideas come to be in the first place. So I'm literally trying to break down the structure in my thinking.
0: Let me ask you my next question in a very specific way. So, when I ask you how do you use affective masculinity, specifically, how are you using them vis a vis the fields that you're talking to affect theory, masculinity studies at large?
1: Yeah. In my previous long exposition, I was really trying to understand affect and masculinity, I guess, separately in a way. I So uh, this is a good opportunity for me to sort of bring it together. So how do we loosen our attachment to the object world of heteropatriarchy? Because, you know, I'm really committed to the idea of studying literature and films and digital texts. So that is literally what I do. So I'm really thinking about how does the subtext or just the surface level of the text that I'm studying itself, how is it helping me sort of loosen my attachment to the object world that we know now is problematic. But I'm really thinking at the level of language, at the level of pre-linguistic, or at the level of pre-conscious, how is it helping us to loosen our attachments? So I'm interested in loosening these attachments, right? And what I really mean by affective masculinity is that say you witness a script, which is a very, very traditional script of, uh, you know, a very, very conservative sort of a model. But then there is this moment when you are sort of, you know, witnessing that script, but there is a certain kind of destabilization that is also happening at the level of pre-conscious through your interaction with that script, because you have also sort of, you know, been imbued in Uh, other scripts
0: right right can you give an example
1: i'm kind of obsessed with you know uh, sharuk khan because sharuk khan is a very interesting figure that way and you know there has been a lot of talk about his masculinity but he is one of those figures who kind of is liked universally in a way like even the most conservative figures can't help but sort of smile and i know i mean this has obviously become you know contested in recent india but is also kind of demonstrating his singular appeal right so you see the figure of sharuk khan right he is he is someone who is not at all afraid to be vulnerable. He is also very, he has this sense of humor. And yeah. uh, he is also always kind of edging you in a way to think through things, but without sort of destabilizing you. So, so yeah. what I try to say here is that he is not a very disruptive figure. No, he's not. Yeah. But he's also someone who is capable of disrupting a lot of things because it's like you kind of unconsciously slide in an interaction with him where yeah. you end up liking yeah. him, and you yourself don't really understand why you like him. Yeah, because it's not that you know he's uh, you know making a lot of you know commentary about things, but he's doing a lot. So to take that example further because one of the things that he does this very consistently through is the use of comedy right so comedy as a form is something that you can associate with Shah Rukh Khan because he has this particular way of talking his paratext is all about his witty humor and things like that right. so I'm interested particularly in the form of comedy because you know comedy is that place where you'll see a lot of affect sort of you know sliding in without you like always being conscious of
0: Mm.
1: so how that happens is that really the space of a joke is a very very interesting sort of a space right like so it's an encounter where you're not being prefigured by the expected script it's a moment of interaction where you go in expecting something but you're sometimes casually surprised without being very very how do I put it like non-sovereign about it like you don't yes get very worked up about you know why didn't I uh, you know get this or something like that I mean some people obviously can get worked up about it but that is not how the joke operates so I'm very very interested in thinking about say what just the form of a joke is capable of. Now, even the form of comedy has evolved so much, like previously. It was kind of okay to laugh at sexist, racist jokes and stuff right. like that. Now it's just not cool. It's not just I because... mean,
0: Hopefully. and you know I say this with hope, more than like insurance. but like we've evolved beyond a point where there was this kind of ruling conviction that you have to hurt people in order to be funny which I don't think it is true. But I absolutely loved the way in which you've talked about how a joke works in a non-sovereign way. And I think it's a great way to put it because there's a way in which good comedy makes you not think of yourself. There's a way to kind of lose that painful first-person insistence, let's say
1: right and also like in the space of that encounter even without you being conscious of it you're in a triangulated relationship with the one who is telling the joke you as the listener of the joke and then also like just the space itself right that also has a materiality so say for example now we hear a sexist joke and you do sort of laugh at it in the moment of your first hearing it yeah There is also the possibility that you would, mainly because of the paratext, you know, by that moment there probably it has been retweeted thousands of times and there has been a lot of discourse around it. There's a chance that you will revisit that encounter in a different way the next time you hear it. And for me, it is important to think about that kind of a lateral shift that can also happen just because of the way the world is and our being and belonging in it. Because it's not just about the individual, but it's literally about your attachment to the world.
0: This is a great place to ask you my final question, which is how will effective masculinity save the world?
1: You know, (laughs) I've been anticipating this question. I've been trying to think about this question. And I'm not very sure if the storm itself can, you know, save the world. But paying attention to affect can definitely help us arrive at a better way of thinking about our attachments to the world. And that itself for me is something that I want to see as a win. But at a more serious level, I'm thinking about... A way of interpreting masculinity beyond the paranoid idea of toxic masculinity, which is also the overwhelming script to study or interpret masculinity, because the idea of paranoia at an affective level interrupts a sense of dynamic interaction with the world. It's almost like you presume the event of meaning making without allowing yourself to be transformed by it, right? So the moment you have a paranoid view of the world, it's almost like you have made up your mind that this is how I'm going to feel about things. So, and I think that paying attention to very, very small, intractable intensities of feelings or, you know, some things that you can't even articulate can shift your perception of received models, which are always going to operate in this kind of a binary assumption of good and bad as if like there is I mean nobody really understands what is a good masculinity or what is a bad masculinity because you know I mean these things are also abstractions so I there's also lately a lot of talk about positive models of masculinity which is a very very important field of uh, you know conversation but then again like If you think about masculinity as a social uh, organization which has been inherently dominated by a sense of whiteness and capitalism and things like that, without detaching yourself from those scripts, a positive idea of mm-hmm. masculinity will just not work.
0: Right.
1: So I think paying attention to affect can possibly make you conscious of these attachments without giving in to very... Absolute ideas, but when I look at figures like Andrew Tate or you know Jordan Peterson and you know the cult following it. For me, these are really like embodiments of patriarchy, like at its very, very simplistic form, right? Like the assessment of Andrew Tate would be him celebrating an idea of rugged individualism, a specific idea of conservatism. uh, And also like sort of he is kind of embodying all of these scripts, which are really uh, kind of, you know, consumed within what I was trying to say that we need to detach ourselves from. So I do see him as just manifestations. But it's important for me to really understand more as to why people would follow these individuals or what is the affective appeal of these individuals, right? Why is it that people are sort of, you know, goaded into believing these scripts, despite It telling you that not everyone can be Andrew Tate. I think Lauren Berlin's work has done this so well, like in terms of the cruel optimism of Mm. attaching yourself to the very things that impedes your sense of progress in the world, right? Which is our attachment to the scripts of capital. However, in terms of thinking of it through feminist activism... I really want to decenter the individual from it because you know if, and if you look historically there has always been Andrew Gates there'll always be individual manifestations of a symptom right but what is important for me to think more about is transformational infrastructures that really reduces the sense of aspirationality associated with individuals like this right
0: mm.
1: so for me any kind of Feminist work has to sort of decenter the individual and sort of think about increased collectivizing and definitely revolutionary consciousness towards decentering these kind of scripts in the first place. So, I'm not very, you know, worried about individuals like this. For me, it's again important to get into the heart of how these scripts turn out to be aspirational. And the last thing that I want to talk about here in terms of how it can save the world. We also need to dislodge ourselves from a carceral politics, right? Because we, we mm-hmm. recognize historically that it has been really been carceral politics, which has been the main fundamental way through which patriarchy has operated. So we have to be yeah. very, very conscious of not engaging in that same kind of a model, especially through our research and thinking. And so that is one way I would say paying attention to affect, paying attention to really slow everyday mode. Of indeterminacy can help us probably decenter these kind of you know very very dominant scripts and not also give in to that carceral logic.
0: Yeah, so this is a great place to end on. Anwita, thank you so much for coming to High Theory and talking to us about affective masculinities. This was wonderful. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And thank you for listening to High Theory.
1: If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast
0: fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage your social media presence. Julia Irian Martins edits our transcripts, Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.